Thank you very much, Matt. Shall we pray as we ask God to help us to open that and to understand it together? Father, thank you for your word. And we so ask that you will give us not just ears to hear this, but hearts to receive and minds to understand and hands and feet, as it were, to go and to live out your message and your call to faith in you and your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just watching the world news at the moment makes me wonder where the world is going. Where will it all end, as we say? The UK and Europe are bickering about Brexit. Trump is threatening to bomb or invade North Korea. Extremists attack a mosque this week in Egypt. Christians around the world are increasingly persecuted, put in prison and killed. Um, England are potentially losing to Australia in the ashes. Could it get worse? And rather like one of the people in the reading says, you know, how long, O Lord, will this go on? When will this all happen? Um, when will it all end? And it's a question that I think all of us stop and think about when we reflect upon the world we live in and some of the turbulence, the chaotic events around us. And it's a question that the book of Daniel makes us ask, and it makes that the two men ask in verse 6, how long until, sorry, chapter 12, verse 6, how long until these astonishing events are fulfilled? And as, as we saw in our reading, some astonishing things are spoken about in Daniel, uh, very much to do with the turbulence of the world and the uncertainty of the future. And it's a good question. We saw in the last two weeks that there's this tension in Daniel between the now, the what God says about the present, and the not yet, what God says about the future. That God's kingdom, in many senses, has already begun and is coming, and in Christ particularly has come, and yet is not complete, not fulfilled, not yet, until the future. Uh, and we put up this picture, which just helps to uh, unpack how that tension of the present and the future comes in what we call the, the middle part there, the two ages existing together. The present age... Uh, which was the age of Israel before Christ, the age of Daniel. Um, but then in the coming of Christ, you see the cross there. The new age begins, the kingdoms come, says Christ, in the Gospels. Uh, and yet the old age continues. Things are not yet perfect and right. There's still evil and injustice. Um, and then one day when Christ returns, the second coming, the right-hand side there, the current age ends. All evil and sin is removed, and... The kingdom of God is complete and revealed. And we're in that middle bit, the two ages together, the now and the not yet. Or in Daniel, what's called the 70th week. Daniel's told in his day, which was, uh, say, around about 500 years before Christ, there'd be 70 weeks to come till everything was fulfilled. And he's told that 69 take place before this last 70th one. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that that's almost certainly the present age we live in. From the coming of Christ, particularly the death of Christ on the cross, that last week begins. The Messiah is killed, and evil continues, but God's people also live in the age of the kingdom, of the Messiah, of Christ. 
So we're in that week 70, and uh, chapters 11 and 12 of Daniel, really, are all about those days of week 70. What's it like to live in this period? What's the future hold towards the end of that week, as it were? And in Daniel, and in human history, and in Christian theology in the Bible, there are patterns that keep repeating in this week that we live in, this last week of history, as it were. Um, Climactic events that come and go, particularly around the coming of Christ, but actually are still repeated. Uh, Evil is being perpetrated by wicked kings and powerful people. Believers are being persecuted at their hands, and yet that persecution one day leads to God's justice, when both evil and the faithful get what's due to them, judgment and resurrection in turn. So here in Daniel 11 to 12, I've just got two headings to kind of open up, I think, well, big themes of Daniel. Here's the first one. The theme that boasting will always lead to shame one day. Boasting leads to shame. And that's where the the many kings that are listed in chapter 11 of Daniel come in. Uh, We only looked at one in the reading just now, towards the end of the chapter, but there are many. So if you flick back to chapter 11 and the beginning there, verse 2, really. Daniel 11, verse 2. See there that Daniel is told the truth that three more kings will appear in Persia. He lives, remember, in the time of Babylon. And Babylon was succeeded by the Medes and the Persians. So the, the near future is the Persian Empire coming. Um, that's the very first of the kings to come. And you see there are three and then another one, four of them. And he stirs up trouble, the fourth one, the end of verse 2. And in verse 3... Another king comes from Greece. Um, He's mighty. He rules with great power. People think that particularly makes you think of Alexander the Great, who had a tremendous military success, tremendous big empire, but then suddenly died without succession. So as a result, in verse 4, Alexander's kingdom was broken into four. Um, Four um, Greek kingdoms arose from Alexander's time, And that may well be the four winds spoken about there in verse 4. And from them, in turn, came four different families or or ruling empires around the Mediterranean, but two especially, the kings of the north, who ruled over what we think of as Syria. They were a tribe called the Seleucids, the Seleucid family. And the kings of the south, ruling over what we call Egypt, who were the family called the Ptolemies, Ptolemy I and his successors. And if you... We haven't got time now, but you read through from verse 5 to verse 20. There's a whole number of both of those. The kings of the north, the kings of the south. They intermarry. One of the daughters given in marriage was Cleopatra, the famous Cleopatra given um, by one of the Seleucids to one of the Ptolemies to try and cement um, an alliance with them. But she actually ended up far more loyal to her husband than she was to her family, and it all backfired. That story is told in verses 5 to 20. We don't have time to look at them now. But the, the theme there is continual warfare, negotiation, alliance, retreat, coming and going, rising, but also falling. And time and again, it says in Daniel here that the, the, the king of the north or the king of the south went to war, won a victory, but, but nothing much happened. But they had to retreat. But they were then defeated. 
that's one of the, the themes, really, that all this search for human power, in the end, gets no one anywhere. None of them last very long. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. And then we get in verse 21 to the king who occupies the rest of the chapter, and the, the experts on Daniel think this is almost certainly talking in the original context about a king called Antiochus Epiphanes. Don't worry about the name. Um, Antiochus was his name. He called himself Glorious. That's what Epiphanes means, Glorious. Slightly, you know, proud thing to call yourself. Hi, I'm, I'm Richard the Glorious Rector. It's kind of not very British, is it? But it seemed to be a kind of Greek thing to do. So he called himself Epiphanes, the Great, the Glorious. Um, but as we saw in the reading, uh, he was not only very proud and arrogant, exalting, verse 36 of our reading, exalting himself, magnifying himself, and saying unheard things against the God of gods, he was therefore very godless. So people called him, it was a kind of a, a pun in the Greek, but they called him Antiochus the Mad, not the Glorious. Um, doesn't work so well in English, but that was the gist of it. So here is this Antiochus, very arrogant, greedy, wasteful, notoriously so. And uh, in just before our reading, verses 31, 32, 33, Antiochus, again this happened in history, invaded Jerusalem uh, around about 170 BC. And he invades Jerusalem after an unsuccessful campaign in Egypt. And in Jerusalem, again, vengefully, he desecrates the temple. He destroys the temple. Um, he sets up a, t- a statue to Jupiter, actually a Roman god, in the temple of Jerusalem, this holy place, where God's people had worshipped Yahweh, the God of hosts, for centuries. He sets up a, a statue of Jupiter there. That's the abomination causing desolation in the original context. And alongside that, he flatters the Jewish leadership. He tries to get them onto his side to entice them to collaborate with his Greek government to compromise on their loyalty to the Lord. And some of them do, it seems. Um, They give in, they abandon their God, their law, to serve him. But, verse 33, the godly Jewish leaders continue to teach God's word. So there are people, a small number, who stay faithful to the Lord, even through Antiochus. But boasting, we've seen, and Daniel sees, boasting, remember, leads to shame. And Antiochus, as we saw in our reading, through all of this complicated story of his, comes to a sticky end. Verse 45, he will meet his end, it says, and there's no one there to help him then. He hadn't turned to God, he was on his own in the face of death. And that's true of all of these kings, most of all Antiochus, but all of the other ones on the screen there, they have their moment of glory, but it's short-lived, and all of their boasting leads to shame. All their attempts at lasting fame, if I can put it this way, all the attempts of kings and princes to gain power and fame come to nothing. That's really half of the gist of Daniel. The whole book, as well as tonight's passage. All of the attempts of kings to gain power and prestige, in the end, lead to nothing. Boasting leads to shame. Now, it's interesting here because Antiochus, his historical figure, begins to merge and blend into a more timeless figure, as it were, a kind of prophecy for the future, in the end of chapter 11. 
He becomes almost a a personification, a, a typical figure for evil. As you get to chapter 11 and then chapter 12. Uh, and so if you look at, at the Bible again in verse 2 of chapter 12. This refers perhaps to Antiochus, but perhaps also to the fall of evil at the end of time, when, when Christ returns. There will be a time of distress, verse 1, such as hasn't happened from the beginning of nations until then. And then verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, we'll come back to that, others, though, to shame and everlasting contempt. It does seem to be saying that, that Antiochus, but actually all who do evil, all who reject God, all who set themselves up as number one in life, and all those who compromise their faith, who in the end decide to obey man and not God, All, he says, will face, not just death, but actually shame for having denied God in this life. And it's a tremendous warning, isn't it, Um, for human power around us, for the political leaders and the powerful people of our world, but also for us if we're tempted to compromise our faith, to get an easy life, to collaborate with the culture around us in a way that makes us compromise on God. Because what Daniel says is that whenever we see a movement that proclaims that they are God, that the state is God, whenever a nation that we belong to becomes more important than God's kingdom, whenever man-made power is what we put our trust in, whenever governments and ideologies insist that we compromise and collaborate our faith to work with them, whenever we sense just that behind human power There lies an unseen spiritual power. Don't you sometimes sense that? Isn't that always true in some way? There's always an unseen power, spiritual power, behind physical power. We see there the spirit of Antiochus Epiphanes, the boasting of human and evil power against God. And we need to remember then that such power boasts in glory and humiliates the faithful, but such boasting will lead to shame one day. Antiochus will rise to shame and judgment. So will Nero, who burnt Christians. So will Stalin. So will those today in the church who compromise truth in order to conform to culture. So, according to the book of Revelation, will Satan himself, the very personification of evil, uh, Revelation says, um, will have a moment of glory, but then will be destroyed in the lake of fire. Boasting leads to shame. That's our first big thing from Daniel. There's the second one. Testing leads to glory. Uh, This is moving on, as it were, to the good news. If you go back to chapter 11, we saw some of the suffering of God's people under Antiochus in verse 31. But there was there still some good news in verse 32... It says that the people who know their God will firmly resist him. That could be translated, um, will be strengthened. Those who know their God will be strengthened. Sense there that um, though the people of Israel in those times were being oppressed by Antiochus, they were being persecuted, invaded, there will be people 
who are strong in faith nonetheless, who don't give in, who don't compromise, who hold on to God's word that he's given them for these times. They'll be strengthened in their faith. And verse 33, they'll be strengthened not just by the scriptures they've got, but by the wise people they've got. Those who are wise will instruct many. So God gives us, for times of trial, the Bible, the words to hold on to, but also the wisdom of the wise. We are a community of faith, not least so that we can stand firm in times of difficulty. The church is the bulwark of faith, as Paul says. And also, we are protected. Uh, Chapter 12 again, just flick over to chapter 12 again. Verse 2. There will be a time of distress, as we saw in verse 1, which again may refer to the suffering of Christ, it may refer to the fall of Rome, uh, for Jerusalem under Rome in AD 70. It certainly refers to the return of Christ and the end of this age. And at that time, God's people will be delivered, verse 1, and multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life. There'll be protection and, verse 3, verse 2 and 3, resurrection. Michael is mentioned here. His name actually means who is there like God. It's a kind of way of saying to all of these physical human powers, the Antiochuses and the Neros and the Stalins um, and the Chairman Mao's and the Trumps and so on, who is there like God? You may think you're great and powerful and you may boast in that, but there's no one like God. He's truly sovereign, as we've seen in Daniel. And Michael is the one that will be sent, says Daniel, to protect God's people in time of distress. So rather than when a time of trial comes, the onus for surviving that, resting on us and what we do, isn't that wonderful? It's God that sends a protector. It's grace again. And if you're someone who's not a Christian and you face trials in life, there is a helper, there is a protector. Don't try to go through life in your own strength. Don't try to overcome evil in your own strength, but trust in the Lord and in his angels whom he sends. So this week 70 that we saw at the beginning that we're living in now, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming, it may often seem a very long time to wait, mightn't it? But he strengthens us, he protects us in this time, and thirdly, he promises resurrection at the end. Uh, Verse 2, those who follow Christ who are faithful through suffering will rise from the dust. That's just a picture of of humans, how we we go back to the earth at the end of life. We'll rise from the dust like those waking from sleep. It's all death is to the Christian, waking from sleep, and enter everlasting life. And that life resurrection for Christians, it's not like a, a compensation for suffering in this life. Of course, it can be that. The point here is it's a vindication for being faithful in this life. You were faithful, therefore you will rise. You hung on to my word, you trusted my promise, therefore you'll have resurrection with Christ my son. The wise will shine like stars in the sky. The wise that gave wisdom for suffering now will shine in the sky then. 
So here's the, the kind of reversal we've seen in our two points tonight. Boasting leads to shame, but trials, testing, suffering leads to glory. Royal glory in the Bible comes through shameful martyrdom. And if that's making you think of Christ, and of course the suffering of Christians today, then it should do. That's a huge biblical message. So that's what Daniel's saying as I kind of begin to bring this together tonight. Hang on to your faith. If you have a faith in Christ, hang on to it, cultivate it, nourish it, be together with God's people, be with the wise that you might be strengthened in it. Whether you are in prison for Christ, discouraged by the compromises of the wider church, bullied by your boss, defending your Christian values at college, suffering, testing, may, will come today for us all in different ways, but glory comes tomorrow. Suffering today, perhaps, but glory tomorrow when this age ends and the kingdom's fulfilled. That's Daniel. That's the good news. So back to the question I began with, and before I just went with two practical things. How long, that was the question in verse 6 of chapter 12, wasn't it? How long until all this is complete, till the week is finished? It seems a very long week, Lord. Rather like, you know, getting through to, to Friday morning if you're at work all week. How long? Well, Daniel's given a figure, isn't he, in chapter 12, verse 7, of three and a half days, which is pretty much the 1,290 sorry, three and a half years, 1,290 days uh, at the very end of the reading. Pretty much everyone agrees this is symbolic. It clearly wasn't three and a half years from Daniel's time. That was centuries, millennia ago now. It matches the uh, same period he was told about in Daniel chapter 9. The half a week, three and a half days, half a week, Symbolic numbers. So it's as if God's saying, well, this week 70 will have two halves to it. And the two halves seem to be hard to tease out, hard to put in order, actually, but a a half in which God's people experience tremendous suffering and a half which we experience God's protection. And it may just be that the two halves actually overlap. The two go together. But says two things that characterize this last week. Tremendous suffering and faithfulness, but also protection until Christ returns. And that's the gist, I think, of this chapter 12. It will be long, it won't be easy, but for the faithful, there'll be protection and there'll be resurrection. Rather like that in, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24, where Jesus explores some of this same theme of how long will these events go on and when will your kingdom come. He says um, that God has cut short those days for the sake of the elect, for the sake of his people. He will protect us. He will reduce our suffering and cut short those days. So we can't get around this. It is mysterious. It's hard to be sure just how this happens, how long it will be. We're certainly not given dates. We're given patterns and not timetables. But the Bible consistently, from Daniel to the book of Revelation, paints this picture of a period of opposition from the world and of protection from God until a final battle in which Satan is overthrown, 
by God, not by us, but by God, by Christ, and the kingdom is complete, and heaven and earth are restored and united. Boasting leads to shame, but suffering and testing lead to glory. So, what's God said to us through Daniel? I've just got really two things. Two things to kind of unpack from that message tonight, that suffering may come, but glory follows. Glory comes tomorrow. Trust the Bible, strengthen each other. Trust the Bible, strengthen each other. Daniel was given these visions, and we've received them because he was given them, they're in our Bible, to interpret human history, the events of the world, for us today, and for God's people through all time. And when we hear, as Jesus says, of wars and rumors of wars, we are not to panic, says Jesus. Uh, We're not to rejoice that it means he's coming tonight, because it doesn't necessarily. But we are to hold on, to remain faithful, to watch and to wait. To hold on to God who strengthens us with his wisdom and who promises that one day, like Daniel, that last verse there, we will rest and rise receive our inheritance hold on, that's the promise trust the Bible we're not to give in to human power that tries to persuade us either by flattery or by force to go its way and deny Christ we are to take every chance we get to tell others of this good news if you're here tonight and not a Christian we are to invite you to come and receive Christ who freely gives you new life and the hope of eternity protection and resurrection through faith, through what he's done on the cross. And we are to remember that in Christ we've been given security and a future, protection and resurrection in the kingdom of Christ. And our carol services in this next few weeks are just one opportunity to celebrate that because it's with the birth of Christ that that began and to live that out. And lastly, we're to strengthen each other. We saw, didn't we, that it was through the words of the wise, through the words of Scripture, that God's people were kept faithful in time of trial. Daniel assumes that it will not be easy to be a Christian in whatever age we live and whatever place we live. It will not be easy. There'll be temptation, there'll be compromise, there'll be distraction, there'll be oppression. And Daniel says, wherever you are, use the community of faith, the church, the scriptures, each other to strengthen one another in faith. Hardship may make us doubt God's goodness. Culture may demand compromise. But we have each other to remind each other, to encourage each other, to spur each other on, to teach each other these promises, to pray for each other. That's why things like small groups, one-to-one partnerships to read the Bible and pray together are so powerful because that's us sitting with the wise gaining strength. That's how we do it. That's why Sundays, of course, are so important too. We will hear wars and rumours of wars. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Oppression will come. But Christ is on the throne of heaven. He has given his word to the faithful, his angels to protect us, his message to share with others, his resurrection promises to hold on to. What a day it will be. What a day it will be when we see him, when he comes in glory. 
and how amazing it will be on that day to know that many heard of that kingdom through us, his people, today, because we stood up faithfully and shared it. And that many, therefore, hear the same words that we hear as God's faithful people on that day, rest and then rise in my kingdom to receive your inheritance. Let's be still for a moment as we pray. So, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your coming kingdom. Thank you for the glimpses of that kingdom we already see. Thank you for the bread and wine tonight in this communion, which remind us of the sacrifice you made to open the door of your kingdom to us freely. Thank you for sins forgiven. But thank you, too, for strengthening protection and for hope, the promise of new life in eternity. Make us strong, we pray. Those of us that feel very weak need tonight, strengthen our faith to live for you again this week and the week after and the week after. And may we hold on to you and point others to you until your glorious return. Amen.